The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Well, I want you to, if you have a Bible, let's open it to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26. We're just going to look at 10 verses. Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. And what we're going to talk about today is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the title of the message is, What Jesus' Prayer Means for You. Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this was uh, after he had had the Lord's Supper and the Passover meal with his disciples. And it was evening and it was dark and they went out and down the Kidron Valley. And Jesus made his way to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives, literally on probably the bottom part of the Mount of Olives. There were, there were all of, uh, in fact, that's why the Mount of Olives is called the Mount of Olives. They're filled with olive trees and gardens. And there were personal gardens of olive trees that were owned there. And it was a place that Jesus was familiar with. We believe that it was owned by a believer, one of the early disciples and followers of Jesus. And whenever Jesus would come from the north up near uh, Galilee, and, and that's where the majority of his ministry was, but when he would come down for the Feast of the Lord, as he had come down for Passover... He would, he would go to pray on the Mount of Olives and there in the garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. So I want to give a little couple of words of introduction to you. This is a prayer. When he went in, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is the prayer that I like to say changed the world. The events that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and what Jesus prayed, how he prayed. Now, many of you are familiar with this story. But I realize there are some of you that are, you're going to be hearing this and reading this maybe for the first time, uh, and it may be entirely new to you, but this is a, a, a scene that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane and has been remembered through all the centuries, literally for the last 2,000 years. This is a go-to story, and it's a place where many believers have gone for comfort, uh, these places where Jesus uh, was in agony and where he was suffering and where he cried out in his humanity. The beautiful, he, he's fully human, that's the virgin birth, but he is also fully divine. And that beautiful blending of humanity and deity, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, how he entered into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and and what happened there that night, 2,000 years ago, reverberates to this day, some 2,000 years later. And the passion that Jesus demonstrated on that momentous night has been depicted in music. It's been written about in all kinds of books, let alone commentaries on the Bible and the Gospels. It's been displayed in films for centuries. In fact, in the 16th century, Johann Sebastian Bach wrote two beautiful oratorios that were based on the Gospels of Matthew and John. And even to the present day, I'm sure all of you will remember the film, The Passion of the Christ. 
and where it showed Jesus going into the Garden of Gethsemane, and there as he was praying uh, as the Savior of the world, getting ready in preparation for going to the cross. Even our language has been affected by these events, giving us phrases like, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And this one, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And another, sweating great drops of blood. Can you imagine? The Bible actually says that Jesus was so upset and he was so grieved and he was so emotional and so passionate that literally, and, and this is something that uh, medical science has talked about that can happen in extreme, excruciating situations. His capillaries were bursting and he literally was sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, let's get started into the story, and I want to begin with this. Gethsemane, so these are kind of the little uh, application points as we go through the story, but Gethsemane is the place of coming to terms with the will of God, and Jesus is our example. So beginning in verse 36, let's read verses 36 through 38. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter, the two sons of Zebedee, which would be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Wow. Now, to give you some idea of what we're looking at here and, and what immediately begins to be described, let's begin with the word Gethsemane. It's, it's the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does the word Gethsemane mean? It's a Hebrew word that means an olive press. Okay, so there was, he prayed in a garden of Gethsemane, olive press, and that's why that entire mountain is called the Mount of Olives. Even to this day, uh, when you go to Israel and you visit Jerusalem and go to the Mount of Olives, they have olive trees right at the base of the mountain where we believe there was the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are olive trees still there. The olive tree is a very interesting tree that can live for hundreds and hundreds of years. Basically, its root system just keeps replanting. And they have some trees there that they say are very, very ancient, and they're old and big and gnarly. Uh, so this is where the olives were. Well, then a Gethsemane is an olive press. And this is where you would take the olives into the Gethsemane, the olive press, and they would crush the outward flesh of the olives in order to extract that fresh oil. In the ancient world, of course, olive oil was used for all kinds of things, uh, for lamps and for lighting, for healing and for medicine and for fragrances and all other kinds of things. It was an extremely valuable commodity. But Gethsemane is an olive press. You break and you crush the olives, and out of it comes that sweet anointing oil. It was also used for anointing. It was used in the 
temple of the Lord. It was used in the presence of God. Kings were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. The oil becomes a symbol, really, of the Holy Spirit. It had a sweet fragrance to it. It had many qualities that are similar to the Spirit of the living God. So here where olives were crushed, Jesus now goes in to pray. He begins to become very emotional. He becomes very uh, distressed. He becomes so sorrowful and emotionally burdened with passion. He literally is afraid I might die here praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, but I can't. I've, I've got to go fulfill my calling from my Father which is going to the cross. That's what he had said from the beginning and all the way to the end, and now here he is there. But now he is here to pray and talk to his father about the cross. And he's going to be talking to his father about, is this your will? What is your will, Father? I want to make sure before I go and surrender myself that this is absolutely your will and the plan and path of salvation. So Gethsemane was a great pause before all of the events that we just talked about last weekend from Good Friday, where Jesus was crucified and then buried and on the third day resurrected from the dead. Those are the events that are coming. But now there's a dramatic divine pause. On that night after the Lord's Supper, the Passover meal, this is my body broken for you. This is the cup of my blood shed for the remission of your sins. I need to go pray. Because before the night was through, he would be betrayed, as he knew, by one of his very own, as painful as that was, and on the next day to be crucified on Friday. And I want to just take a moment and say, you know, look at an application of where we are in our world right now. What has happened this year and this season, it's almost like we're in a global Gethsemane. There are some people who've the crushing and the weight of what has been happening in this virus and how it has literally taken the whole world uh, out of its normal life and routine uh, and put it on pause with great anguish. There's a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear. As I've mentioned, those who have loved ones who have died, they have been emotionally crushed. There are others, and we are praying for them that are sick and they have the virus, and we're praying that God would touch them and God would heal them. But all the families of those who have loved ones who have the illness, they're also being crushed. And I know that, you know, people have made fun a uh, little bit of, of us who are having to stay home and we, we can't go to work. Oh, how, how sad. And it seems maybe uh, silly that we would complain that we're being housebound and we can't go about our lives. But, you know, I, I think maybe in the beginning it was good to tease about that. But now that we realize the cost of that, that there are, peop there are whole sections of businesses that have literally been upended the, the global economy has been put on a pause. It has caused great anguish. And there are millions of people. I don't know what the latest number is, but there's probably people watching this service right now. You're one of those, at last I heard, 17 million people who lost your job. Okay, now, look, mentally, emotionally, you got a family you want to provide, 
Uh, even if you want to just provide for yourself there, and you don't have a job, uh, you're not just sitting at home biding your time. You're worried. And there's an emotional aspect to this. And that's what, this is before Jesus went to the cross. This is before the nails went into his hands or they drove a spike into his feet. This was mental grief. This was emotional disturbance. This was spiritual distress. This was causing him to go and to pray and say, Father, is this really what you have called me to do? Is this truly your will? And we'll get into what the heart of his prayer was. If it's possible, let this cup pass. But I just want to say that today, in a sense, there, there's a global anxiety, global fear, global mental, emotional distress. People are frustrated. And then there are others that are saying, man, okay, if the numbers are flattening or they're coming down, let's get back to work. Let's get back to our lives. There's a lot of fear. And I believe that all of those emotions Jesus was experiencing. There had been, he hadn't been beaten yet. He had not been betrayed yet. He had not been arrested yet. He had not been put on the cross yet. It was all what was going on internally, but it was happening, happening in a garden called Gethsemane, which is where there is a crushing. And all of that weight was upon him. And I want you to note that in his Gethsemane, the answer to his Gethsemane was to pray. And I believe that with this global anxiety, fear, anguish, all that the world is going through right now, you know, because people are like, can't this be over? Can't we just, you know, tomorrow let's get back. And we realize, wow, there's, we've got to find our way back. And, and we're praying that God would help us. And in the name of Jesus, Lord, open before us as it was the children of Israel after Passover, there was a big red sea in front of them that said, you can't pass this. Two and a half million people, wahoo, we're, we're delivered. We're no longer slaves. Now where are we going to go? There's a big red sea and we can't cross over. And there needed to be a miracle. And there was one of the first miracles because Moses, as the people started panicking and fearing, were trapped. What good is it to be delivered and then to have the Red Sea in front of us and we just are trapped. And now the Pharaoh had sent his army after them. And Moses stood up as their leader and with that staff that God had shown him was great power that God was with Moses, that Moses was his, his leader, his prophet. And God had told Moses, you go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And I believe that God is saying today in this global Passover, on behalf of his children and his sons and daughters, he's pointing a finger at the devil and he is saying, you let my people go. And it's powerful. And then Moses had a staff and God said, I'm going to show you that my authority is in that staff. You raise that staff up and you open your mouth. You say, Moses, what I tell you to say. And Moses is the mouth that said, let my people go. It came from God. But God said to his servant, Moses, you will be my mouthpiece. Your mouth will be as the mouth of God to Pharaoh. So may the Lord bless every ministry and every minister and every pastor and prophet and priest representing the kingdom of heaven around the world. We are his mouthpiece and we are declaring to the devil, let 
God's people go in Jesus' name. And now we raise the staff and he said, stand still and see the salvation of your God. And whoo, two and a half million people saw that that blockage of the Red Sea divide literally wide enough so that the two and a half million people could walk through the Red Sea miraculously. They saw it with their eyes, a wall of water on this side, a wall of water on that side. And Pharaoh was like, wow, we got them trapped. They're in this little valley and now they're crossing. And so he, they weren't even thinking, hey, this is a miracle. How did the Red Sea part like that? And they chase after them. Well, the children of Israel get on the other side. And once the last one gets safely over there, they turn around. And once again, Moses goes back and God closes the Red Sea and all of the Egyptian army was taken up in the sea and they perished in the sea. That's going to happen Again, I believe in our day and in our generation, the Lord is setting up and trapping the enemy, but he's going to be bringing a great miracle and a great deliverance and a great harvest for us. We have to follow his word and be in transition with him. But I want you to look again at what Jesus is saying here. He came to Gethsemane and he took with him Peter, James, and John, began to be sorrowful, deeply distressed, and then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here. Watch with me. Jesus said, Peter, James, and John, I'm going to pray. I need to talk to my father, but I need you. And I want you to, when he says, I want you to watch with me, what Jesus was really asking was, I need you to stay awake with me tonight. I know you're tired. I know you're exhausted. I know that you're worried. And I know that you're afraid. And all of those emotions, fear and worry and anxiety, they have an effect upon us uh, in a physical sense. You, you get exhausted. You get wiped out. And I, you know, it's easy for us to point and say, wow, what, the, the one night Jesus needed Peter, James, and John, why, they should have been there and they should have been awake. Well, would we have been any better would we have been any different? Are we not all sinners saved by the amazing grace of God? Is not all of our spirit willing? I wish we, if I was there that I would have been awake. But would I have been? Would you have been? I don't know. But the Lord expresses his sorrow. And he says, I need you guys to stay with me. Stay awake. And I need you to pray. And I, I want to just, can I just say this before we go on to the next point and just the next couple of verses. One of the reasons, because I, I was asking the Lord, Lord, this is unprecedented. This is, we've never, never been in a situation like this. And it seems, you know, we still are not out of the woods yet. When is this going to change? When are things going to come back? When is the life going to resume? When are we going to be able to go to the beach, let alone to a park? When is life going to continue again? And there, there's a lot of anxiety and fear within all of that. And I believe that, the, you know, why has God delayed? Why, Lord, have you delayed this deliverance? We've gone through the Passover and now, okay, we're plateauing, but there still seems to be something there. And I believe this is what the Lord was sharing me as I was praying and studying this passage and 
saying, Lord, what do you want me to share? First of all, for me to hear, what do you want me to share with those who are going to be watching and listening to this message? And I believe that the Lord just started saying to me, hey, this is a Gethsemane moment. And there are a lot of people in my house and a lot of people that are in my church that are asleep. They do not realize what time it is. They do not realize how near, just like the disciples then did not realize how soon it would be, hours away, Jesus would be on the cross, buried. The third day, risen, appearing for 40 days. And then finally, ascending from the Mount of Olives, with their own eyes, they saw him disappear into the clouds. And he's gone. And he said, wait, pray in Jerusalem 10 days. And then Pentecost and the Holy Spirit is outpouring. But it all happened so fast. And I believe that they were not really awake to it. And so I'm wondering if the Lord is saying, I need my people to wake up. I'm not going to just, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen super fast. But I'm still shaking the earth. I'm shaking everything that can be shaken so that only the things that cannot be shaken shall remain. God is waking us up. And I just talked to a, when I went in to get uh, some food here today, and, and um, I, I, as I went in, that there was the young lady, and she was talking, she knows that I'm a pastor, and she began giving a testimony, and she goes, I just believe that, you know, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian. She goes, but I've been asleep, and I have been so shaken by this. She goes, I believe that all of us need, but this is a wake-up call. It's a spiritual wake-up call, and I certainly agree with that. And I hope that we're all hearing the message, receiving the message, and waking up. Well, let's look at the next verse. Prayer is not about getting our will done, but surrendering to God's will. So there's a picture of one of the olive trees. Just before I get to the next point, I forgot I had that picture, but I want you to take a look at it. It's a, uh, that's an olive tree, an ancient olive tree. Uh, and this is where Jesus had gone to pray among trees just like that that are at the base of the Mount of Olives. But let's look at the next point here. Prayer is not about getting our will done, but surrendering to God's will. So listen to this in verse 39. It says, He, Jesus, went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, Abba, is the Hebrew word for Abba, Daddy, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Here's the heart of Jesus' prayer. When he finally got down upon his knees and when he looked up and began talking to his father, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup, and by the way, the analogy of a cup is that cup represents the cross. It represents the suffering. It represents uh, him becoming the, the sin of all humanity laid upon his shoulders, him becoming our substitute, our sacrifice, the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Him who knew no sin would be made sin, our sin laid upon him so that then he would suffer and then die, for the wages of sin is death. He's the only one who did not deserve to die. He's the only human being that ever lived a pure life, a holy life, 
and a righteous life, but that's what qualified him to be our lamb. A lamb without spot, a lamb without blemish. But now in Gethsemane, he's saying, Father, let this cup pass. So the suffering of the cross is represented in a cup. And all through the Old Testament prophets, the wrath of God, the judgment of God against sin, against evil, against demonic things would be described as a cup of the justice of God or the wrath of God or the punishment of God against evil. And Jesus is now saying, well, I'm going to be drinking that cup of all humanity's sin and shame and guilt and then finally death itself. Father, Abba, Daddy, if it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So I want you to look at this and what Jesus is saying here. Gethsemane is a place we face God's will head on. God, what is your will for this world? What is your will for this time? What is your will for me at this hour? Gethsemane for us also represents when we honestly and clearly look at what God has called us to do and how to live our lives. It's when we consider the call of God and then we count the cost. What is it going to cost, Father, for me to be the man you've called me to be, the woman you've called me to be, the husband, the wife, uh, a father, a daughter, son, a child of God? What is the cost? So Gethsemane, and I love this, Gethsemane is learning that prayer is not about getting our will done, (laughs) but rather surrendering to his will. Now, here's what's also interesting as Jesus, this is the preparation place for Jesus to go to the cross. And he went into not only Gethsemane, which we discussed means an olive press, and the obvious implications and layers of meaning for Jesus, but also it was a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, a garden of olive trees, Does that remind you of anything? The Bible says, the prophet Isaiah, that God has told us the end from the beginning. And you know, when you look at the Bible, you go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In the beginning, the first man, whose name was Adam, and his wife Eve, were in a garden on the top of a mountain called Paradise, which means a garden enclosed. And every day they walked with God in the cool of the evening. That's where mankind started. That's where the first Adam was created, along with his wife, and to have fellowship with God. Why now is Jesus in a garden? Because that's where mankind began, Adam and Eve. And you know, we know the story of the trees. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then there was the tree of life. And the Lord had specifically said to them, I do not want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And essentially, Adam and Eve fell to the temptation. The serpent came, more subtle than all the other creatures. And we believe that the devil came, used the serpent to say, oh, has God not said that you can eat of every tree in the garden? Oh, yes, we can eat of every tree, but we're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why would God be holding out on you? I'm paraphrasing a little bit, the serpent said. 
Oh, he knows that in the day that you eat the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit from that tree, you shall be as gods. You'll be little gods, just like God is God. In other words, Satan's first temptation was, why would you do the will of God when you can do your own will and be your own decider of what your life will be? In other words, Satan said, your prayer or your heart's desire should be not your will, God, but mine shall be done. And that brought Adam and Eve, who were in the garden, they were kicked out and brought into the desert and into the wilderness. But now, here is Jesus, which the New Testament calls a new Adam, or really a last Adam. He's the beginning of a whole new race of men, women, boys, and girls who will come from him born again, first of the flesh, but now born again of the spirit. So this is our Adam. And this Adam, Jesus, is now giving what should have been done by the original Adam in the Garden of Eden. Not my will, but thy will be done. Lord, your will be done. So where Adam failed In the Garden of Eden, Jesus succeeds in the Garden of Gethsemane. And as we think about this suffering that Jesus went through, let's go on to the next couple of verses here. We learn that prayer that delivers from temptation is dependence upon God. If we want to learn, okay, what can I learn from Jesus in the hour of anguish, in the hour of being crushed, in the hour of our Gethsemane, We learn that he reached out even more in his anguish and more in his pain to cry out to the Father, I need you, Father. I don't want to be separated from you, my Father. I want to be dependent upon you, my Father. I want thy will, not my will, but thy will be done. So we read, beginning in verse 40. And then he, Jesus, came to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, Jesus. He is saying to all of us, look, I know you were saying you want to be with me, and Peter was the very one that would deny the Lord as the night goes on. Literally just a few hours later, Peter will be denying Jesus. Though earlier it said, though all of them forsake you, I will not, Lord, I will die for you. He was weak. And in the hour of temptation, that's when we need to pray. And prayer is dependence. Lord, I can't do it in my own ability, in my own strength. I need your strength. I need your spirit. I need your help. I need your attention. I want to be in relationship with you. Let me not be separated from you. I love how at the, at the most, you know, this was the greatest hour of suffering. In fact, it was only second to the suffering of the cross itself. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus leaned into his Father. He cried out to his Father. He drew near to his Father. Let me say that here's what the enemy tries to do. In the hour of crisis, in the hour when everything, the world is falling apart and you're, under, you're being crushed, 
the enemy comes to accuse. If a God, he's so loving and he's so kind, he's letting you go through all of this, you ought to abandon him. You ought to forsake him. You ought to start doing your own will. And that's the temptation that comes. And there's Peter, James, and John, who in that moment needed to be praying with Jesus and needed to be waiting on the Lord and leaning into prayer. And they did the opposite. The only human remedy for our human weakness is prayer. Jesus is not fighting the will of God. He is not resisting the will of God, but he's asking, Father, is this truly, fully, completely your will? Not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so I love in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, it's very comforting to me to realize that even though his human brothers, companions, disciples failed him. In that moment, we read in Luke chapter 22, verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. You know, we not only have our physical brothers and sisters, but there's a whole world in the spiritual, supernatural realm of angels. And I, it just moves me and touches me that God the Father allowed when humans failed Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, even before he went to the crucifixion, he sent angels, and an angel appeared unto Jesus from heaven, ministered to him, strengthened him, comforted him, and I'm sure he loved and appreciated that. The Bible says that the angels are ministering spirits unto all the saints and the heirs of salvation. Jesus had said, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. And Jesus knew Peter would enter into temptation. He knew that he would fail. But prayer is personal dependence upon God. And then I want to close today with this part of the message, the last part of these verses of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus teaches us to pray through. That's what I describe as praying through. You don't stop and you don't quit until you receive finally that answer. And so beginning in verse 42, it says, And again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. I want you to notice a second time he went and prayed the same exact prayer. You know what that tells us? My brothers and sisters, when we pray, you can pray about something more than one time. It's not only allowed, it is modeled for us by Jesus, especially if it's not yet clear. You, Jesus, in fact, will say the same prayer three times. He repeated the prayer three times. And the father gave him the answer three times and comforted his son and encouraged his son and gave him exactly what he needed, the answer. This is my will, and we'll talk about what that request was. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So a second time, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me, unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them, Jesus, again, sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And so he left them, and he went away again, and he prayed the third time, and of course, he prayed the same prayer the third time to his father, saying the same words, Matthew tells us. And then he came to his disciples, 
And he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. At this moment, Jesus got up from the prayer and he, he had his answer. He had it confirmed. And the father had come to his son, sent an angel to minister unto him and gave him the answer that he needed. Yes, son, you need to, this is what you need to do. You need to drink this cup. Yes, son, you need to go to the cross. And I want to describe, so what was Jesus really praying? And the you know, in the final analysis, if, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Another way of putting that in modern English, simple, plain language would be, Father, if there is any other way for man to be saved other than me, your son, holy, pure, faithful, loyal, loving, to take their place and pay for their sins and have their guilt and their shame, and the punishment of their sins, death, come upon me. If there's any other way for man to be saved, let it come and let this cup pass. I want to say to you that no one loves the Son more than the Father. And no one loved the Father more than the Son. And they're having a conversation and a deep prayer. If there's any other way for all mankind to be saved other than the cross and burial and resurrection, let it come. And what I want to share with you at the end here is this. If there had been some other way that man could be saved, surely the father would have said, well, yes, as a matter of fact, there is another way or it would have been found or discovered and it wasn't just once, but twice and then three times. No, son, there is no other way for all of mankind to be saved from every nation, every language, every kindred, every tribe, from the oldest to the youngest, men, and women, boys and girls, the only way for them to be saved is through the cross. And I want to say what Gethsemane testifies to us today is, if there, is any, if there was any other way in the universe in all of time for man to be saved other than the cross, it would have been given then out of a loving heart of a father and a son and their intimacy and eternal unity. But now in a mystery that we don't fully appreciate, comprehend, or can understand, let alone enter into, Jesus, he who knew no sin, would be made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. All of our sin and evil and wickedness and guilt and shame and rebellion and darkness and lostness was to be put on Jesus, and all of his holiness and righteousness was to be given to us for our forgiveness, our healing, our salvation, and the blood of the Lamb that washes and cleanses away all of our sins. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to my Father unless He comes through me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.